Hey everybody, welcome to episode 105 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and excited to be here today. We're going we're gonna to talk about parents, not parenting, but parents, although I'm sure that we're going to be able to get some things out of today's episode that might help with parenting, but we're going to talk specifically about the, the impact that narcissistic or emotionally immature parents have on their kids. And before I do that, I just highly encourage you to go to the link tree or go to TonyOverbay.com and sign up for my newsletter. And the newsletter comes out weekly. There's a lot of gems, a lot of nuggets in there. And sign up for the Magnetic Marriage Marriage Communication course and go find my YouTube channel if you would be so kind. It's Virtual Couch Podcast. My daughter, Sydney, and I have been doing these live relationship question and answers on TikTok. And the response has been amazing. Also, just bizarre to see you, you get 15,000 people stop by a live event and there are a lot of people throwing all kinds of random comments out there. And then there are a lot of really good comments. And I just think the whole thing is fascinating. And Sid and I are, are interacting and we're in real time and answering questions. And those full videos are going up on my YouTube channel. So I'd love it if you would stop by there and you can hit the old subscribe button while you're there, if you would be so kind. But today I'm going to start with a letter that I just thought was so fascinating and they titled it The Narcissist Vaccine. I think this will be perfect segue to get into what we're going to talk about today with parents, emotionally immature narcissistic parents. The person said, hi, Tony, I haven't listened to all of your podcasts yet in all caps, but in case you haven't visited or if you ever revisit the topic of narcissist immunity, here is my situation. I hope it can help somebody and you are free to share it with your listeners. And I have not tackled this concept because being completely honest, I had not heard about the concept of narcissistic immunity. If you are a longtime listener and you might hear the echoes or underpinnings of, there's nothing you will ever say or do that will cause that narcissistic person to have their aha moment or epiphany. This goes in a different direction. So I think this is really, really interesting. The person said, my awakening started when my daughter started dating somebody with strong narcissistic or borderline tendencies. It took about a year of a therapist and me supporting her for her to leave the relationship, and so far she hasn't gone back. The similarities between this boyfriend and my husband were undeniable. That realization, in combination with a few weekends spent physically away from my husband doing fun things with friends and family, an intense conversation with my best friend about my marriage, and a panic attack that led me to speak with a medical professional who then questioned me on all life levels, leads me to poke around the podcast, which led me to the virtual couch, and then eventually to waking up to narcissism. The backstory, my father is emotionally immature and my mother is an emotional guru. I love them both very much. I'm the middle child and we were all raised Southern Baptist. She said yes with all the 80s shame. Thankfully, we have reconciled that upbringing. I just started back to therapy as part of a plan to prepare for the future. She said I most likely will be leaving my marriage as my husband has very strong narcissistic tendencies. But what I recently realized after watching a YouTube video on narcissistic immunity is that thanks to my mother and the tactics she modeled, I feel like I have lessened the damage of these past 25 plus years. I'm hopeful that through therapy, my children will also have these skills I model and more importantly, avoid situations like mine and make different choices. What fascinates me is that the methods I learned from my mother, meaning dealing with my father, have names, gray and yellow rock, trauma bond, self-love, etc. Looking back, I feel like my mother taught me how to self-preserve and preserve my kids. She sets boundaries and my father respects them. She does not tiptoe around his mood. He can be brooding in the corner while we're all happily decorating cookies and we won't notice him. She modeled and taught us to look away from him 
and at each other cross-eyed so we wouldn't disrespect him by laughing when he acts like a child. She taught me not to take things personally, to have a life outside the marriage, to be independent, and to continuously develop myself and my confidence. She modeled gray and yellow rock when needed, most importantly, and she didn't let him distract her from providing us with what we needed. Considering that divorce is not and would never be an option for my mother, I can now see that she's an emotional mastermind who managed and taught slash trained, question mark, my father to manage himself. God bless her for doing that. I can't imagine how big of a heavy lift that was and still is. I am in absolute awe. Now it finally makes sense why they never argued in front of us. She must have known how toxic that would have been for us to witness. It would have been pointless anyway, or most likely she just ignored his fussing and just did what she wanted to do. In retrospect, would I have preferred to grow up in a healthier home? Of course. And that's got an exclamation point. But it is what it is. I just want people to know that if you cannot leave, you have kids watching what you're modeling. Then in the meantime, while you are there, please know if you start to follow the methods to self-preserve and curb the harm, you might also be modeling emotional maturity for your kids like my mom did for my siblings and me. It's still not a good situation, and my kids and I still have a boatload of work to do to unwind the effects that this mess of a marriage has caused. But when I look back and truly see the emotional maturity that my mother passed down to me, the gratitude I have is unmeasurable. I can't love her or thank her enough. Thank you to the person who wrote that, because that takes a lot of courage to put that out there and say, hey, you're welcome to share this. But I think this is the right audience. And what I simply mean by that is that if somebody is listening to this podcast, and especially we're on episode 105, then they're already coming to the table knowing that if it was just as easy to just leave a relationship that was unhealthy, then they most likely would have done it by now. And a couple of things that I will bring, we'll call it gentle awareness to, and this comes with the acceptance that nobody on earth knows what it feels like to be her, the writer of this letter. So if you're already listening and yeah, butting her, for example, yeah, but did he really, meaning your dad, did he really respect the boundaries or did they more learn to be consistent with their boundaries So he learned that it wasn't productive for him to try and push because he couldn't get his narcissistic or emotionally immature fix that way, that he would need to find another way. For example, I've been banging the drum a lot lately on the difference between a boundary and an ultimatum because too often we set ultimatums thinking that we're setting boundaries. And the simple way to look at that is a boundary is a me thing. If you do this, I will do this. An ultimatum is us saying you need to fill in the blank. So let's say that somebody might think they're setting a boundary by saying, When we make cookies, you need to go find something else to do. Well, that's an ultimatum. They're telling him what to do, and then the narcissist will take that as a challenge. Oh, you're telling me what to do, then I will do the opposite. Like a kid, when you tell them to share their toy, nope, they will not share their toy. And all of a sudden, the toy that they didn't give two rips about becomes their most specialist, favoritist toy in the entire universe. So the boundary would be that if you don't find something else to do, or if you aren't talking nice or not bothering us while we make cookies, then we will leave and go make them at my sister's house next door. But then you also need to be prepared to follow through when you set a boundary and know that the narcissist is still going to push because they are still going to see that as a challenge. But if you throw an ultimatum at them, then I mean, that's that's battle. That is war at that point. And I acknowledge that the writer of this letter did repeat the pattern by marrying her very own narcissist or emotionally immature person. But at some point, just being completely honest, it sounds like her mom did an amazing job with the acceptance that she was in the relationship with the narcissist and she was not open to the concept of divorce. And who has the right to tell her? Well, she should have. But if that is what you are starting to process, then that is what you are starting to process. 
So the kids then learn the tools necessary to survive in a relationship with an emotionally immature narcissistic person, but they didn't see a healthy relationship modeled, which then makes sense that she would find herself, the writer, in a similar relationship as the one that she was most likely drawn to or familiar with. So like the the guy in high school or college who was interdependent and differentiated wouldn't typically be on somebody like this as radar. And I'm not saying this with judgment, just more of uh, this is what you typically see. Because somebody like that, again, he wouldn't be on her radar because that would not feel familiar to her. She might be more drawn to somebody who would, who might, uh, and I'm quote, air quoting, mess with her by teasing her in a subtly passive aggressive way that would engage her. So an example might be the guy sees her at a library on campus and he might say that you could use some help to which she might think, well, wait, attention from this male human being where a girl who grew up with a secure attachment in childhood might say, nope, I'm good. Where the insecure girl might say, I mean, maybe, I guess, because she's thinking inside, well, I I can't, I don't want to be rude to him. I don't want to make him feel bad. And then to the securely attached girl, then this might be as subtle as, no, I'm good. Or what on earth makes you think that? Do you actually even understand organic chemistry? With annoyance and a little bit of that annoyance in her, then he might then mutter some negative comment about her and then move on to somebody that is more willing to put up with his brand of, I'll go back to air quote, humor. Kind of like a, geez, relax. I mean, I was just kidding. So a lot of people do feel a bit trapped or stuck, or there are people that are saying, I'm going to figure this out. And there are times where I talk about being able to differentiate, meaning to be able to separate your thoughts and emotions and feelings from those of the person that you are in a relationship with in any relationship. And I was speaking recently at an event where I, I think I actually ended up questioning myself where... If you're in a relationship that you feel you are stuck financially and people around you are saying, well, you just got to tell them and you just have to do what you have to do and you just have to jump out there and be afraid, but do it anyway and all those things, then that person doesn't know what your experience is. So if you are here and you're starting to, to wake up to the emotional immaturity in the relationship, maybe even a trauma bond or feeling trapped or stuck, that it can be pretty overwhelming and scary. So I think that this email goes to that concept of, If you are accepting, and this does not mean, again, acceptance doesn't mean apathy, but it means to take in without defense in its entirety. If I'm accepting the fact that this is where I am right now, and I can't just assume magically that things will get so much better that I'll be able to leave in the next couple of weeks or months or whatever that time frame is, then with that acceptance, now I can differentiate within the relationship. When he or she, whoever the more emotionally immature person is, loses their mind and gets really emotionally dysregulated and upset, then I can practice my boundary of when you do that, then I will leave or I will protect the kids. Or some of the episodes that I've done about co-parenting with the narcissist can be done within the relationship where I am not going to make excuses for the emotionally immature parent's behavior and I'm going to ask the the kid who's maybe the target of the emotional immature parent of, hey, I, I'm here for you. Tell me what that's like. That, that is hard instead of saying, oh, I'm sure mom or dad's just having a rough day. So you can learn to differentiate within the relationship. But when I was speaking at this event, I found myself then saying, but I know that the question that some people have if they're not in that type of relationship is, why on earth are you in the relationship still or staying in the relationship? And sometimes it is that process of, not sometimes, it is the process of needing to figure that out yourself and learning the tools and putting those into practice. And and most likely people are still operating from a place of, if I can change the relationship enough, then the relationship itself will change, which is true. But 
often I think that people are hoping that that relationship change is one that will then work out and you'll live happily ever after with that person because then you can avoid a lot of the discomfort of things like divorce and separating assets and all those things that, yeah, those are not ideal. So I love that she said, in retrospect, would I prefer to grow up in a healthier home? Of course, because that is, uh, I think that's one of the first questions that people ask. Well, wouldn't you rather be in a better relationship or wouldn't you rather be out of an unhealthy relationship? Yeah, it's not the first time that somebody's thought of that before, but it's just, it's not that easy. So I want to talk today about parenting, narcissistic parents. And before I dive too deep into that, let's take a moment and talk about the difference between a parent who would have full-blown narcissistic personality disorder and one who is emotionally immature. Because we're really talking more, I think, about the emotionally immature parent, but then there are examples of a truly narcissistic parent. A quick reminder of NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, is a mental health condition and it is characterized by an inflated sense of importance, a, a very deep core need for excessive attention and admiration, and that does come with a whole package full of troubled relationships, a lack of empathy for others. But behind this mask of of incredible confidence, it lies this fragile self-esteem that is still vulnerable to the very slightest criticism. So then their skin is paper thin and they will lash out to defend their fragile egos. So a lot of times parents in that situation, they have an overblown sense of entitlement and they will manipulate or exploit their kids to meet their needs. And what will come out of that is showing very little empathy and really little to no genuine interest in their child's life unless it serves them as the parent. And they're typically overly concerned with their image or the image of the the family or how their kids reflect on them. Well, do you know how this would look for me? So let's take a look at a, let's say you have a kid who excels academically and they win some prestigious scholarship. The narcissist parent would most likely view this achievement. This is a reflection of my own superiority. They would probably brag about it to everybody else, all their friends. This is excellent genes in action or my incredible parenting is what is responsible. And so then if the child tries to share their own struggles or actually the fact that they put in the hard work that it took to win the scholarship, the narcissistic parent is going to just overlook it, dismiss it, overshadow those experiences, instead focusing on them, the, the narcissistic parent, how this achievement benefits their image. Now let's look at emotionally immature. So if we just give a a general vibe or definition there, emotional immaturity in a parent, that would be characterized more by it's an inability to deal with the parent's own emotions or respond appropriately to the emotions of others. So they are showing up immature. And in in essence, think of it like the temper tantrum is is close to the surface at any time. And that can be even responding to the emotions of their kids. So yeah, they might be self-centered and that's where it can look like narcissism. But it's not to that pathological extent seen in narcissism where it's going to be pervasive in every single situation that you encounter. Because to the emotionally immature parent, they can be exhausting because it goes back to that you never know what you're going to get. So their actions are going to be more about lack of emotional growth and and lack of emotional understanding than a deep-seated personality disorder. So then these parents might struggle with their emotional regulation and they'll be more reactive instead of being responsive. And they're going to have difficulty understanding or sitting with the the potential discomfort of their own child's emotional needs. So their kid might have been pushed to get this prestigious scholarship, but they don't want to be a a rocket scientist any longer. They want to go play in a band. And that is going to make the the narcissist is going to just dismiss it altogether. Like ridiculous. No child of mine is going to be in a band. But that see how clearly it's just a it's a it's a energy, it's a them thing. 
But then the emotionally immature parent is going to lose their crap. Are you kidding me? All the time and effort and energy I put in to and sacrifice what I want to be doing to give you the opportunity to study, to get this scholarship, and now you're not going to go be a rocket scientist? I can't even believe that. So now that emotional dysregulation causes the kid to then say, no, you know what? It's, I don't know what I'm thinking. I'll do it. Yeah, of course I want to do that. We go back to the same scenario, though. The kid excels academically. They win the scholarship. So the emotionally immature reaction, then they, and they might even react at first with excitement. Well, all right, that sounds cool because that's the right thing to do. But quickly, then it's, man, now I have to start worrying about all kinds of things. College and I don't even, you don't really have a car to get out that way. And so it becomes about them, which sounds narcissistic, but it's really about emotional immaturity. The narcissist will just figure it out later. And then um, you get to the end and then all of a sudden they really didn't ever say that. And you were supposed to get your own car or whatever that looks like. And you figure it out and then they get to say, and uh, look how well you figured things out because of me as well. I put you in that situation where you were able to thrive. But that emotional immature person, again, the, the excitement, it can shift so quickly to then what does this do for me? And that can fluctuate. It can go from bad to good, good to bad, where, okay, now I have to worry about your college fees to, okay, but you know what? This is so cool. I can't wait to tell all my friends, my kid got into a great college. But then they might struggle to provide emotional support or recognize even what the child needs. And it's not because they're trying to exploit the thing for their personal gain, but it's because they're unable to fully process or respond to their child's emotional experience because they are continually going back and forth on what they think and feel And they're just throwing that out there at the child. So one minute it really would be the, I am so proud of you. You've worked so hard. And then the next minute is, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to, I guess I can take a second job. Now the kid's going to feel bad. And the parent now gets to then take that one up position and say, no, it's okay. I'm willing to do it. That's, that's what a good, that's what a good dad I am. While both the narcissistic and the emotionally immature parents, it, you see that struggle to focus on their child's needs and feelings. The key difference is really an intention and self-awareness behind what they're saying and doing. Because the narcissistic parent's behavior is, is far more self-serving and manipulative, and that's a key word, while the emotionally immature parent's behavior is more about a lack of emotional development, a lack of emotional control and understanding. Let me tell you a finely curated tale about a person named Carl. And Carl is someone that is almost begging for their story to be told they're a wonderful human being, Carl and I have worked on putting some pieces together of their story. And so today you're going you're gonna to meet Carl and you'll probably hear back from Carl in other episodes as well because there's a lot of fascinating things about Carl. So of course, Carl is not Carl's real name and some of the details have been changed to protect the guilty, as Carl likes to say hilariously. But I think the phrase is supposed to be to protect the innocent. Some of the details have been changed. So we'll call, we'll, we'll call this person Carl. And Carl has become a clinical psychologist. And that is where a real quick rundown on therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, they all walk into a bar. No, I, so I'm a therapist. I have my master's in counseling. And then you do your internship. You get 3,000 hours under your belt and you sit for licensing exams. And then you operate as a licensed, for me, marriage and family therapist. There's my intern, Nate, licensed professional clinical counselor, his wife, Marla, who is just joining as a also in that role. I literally just spilled water all over my computer keyboard. So I will be right back. Hey, everybody. So that was really, really interesting. And I just had to leave that in there because I just want to make a plug 
for mindfulness and meditation because I wish I would have had my video on. I rarely record without video on these days because I want to put clips up on YouTube or wherever. And I wish you could have seen that. I literally knocked over a bottle of water onto my computer and keyboard. And it turns out I'm still wiping it. I didn't realize it get all, it made it all the way up onto my my uh, monitor as well. And at that, those moments are just, I just feel like they are such a testament to a, a regular meditation or mindfulness practice because I was not this guy years and years ago. I would have gotten really upset and I would have probably wanted to complain about it. But that definitely just happened. And I do wonder if I would have watched my computer go up in flames or smoke or something, if that would have been a little more difficult to notice that and just be and do. But yeah, that happened. And we're back. And I lost some time. But uh, what an experience. <laughs> what, a, what a joy that was. So I think I was just talking about the therapist, the psychiatrist, and the psychologist walking to a bar. Oh, and Carl. So there we go. So Carl is a clinical psychologist. That's somebody that has their doctorate in psychology. And so then they can do more than I can do. They can do what I can do, but then they can also run a battery of assessments and exams, psychological testing. They may work for the court or they may work in more clinical settings or environments or hospitals, you name it. And then a psychiatrist is a full-blown medical doctor who goes to medical school, but then they can prescribe medication. So we are, so we're talking about Carl. Carl is a clinical psychologist and he likes talking about his own childhood experiences with a very narcissistic mother and what he calls an emotionally absent or an emotionally immature father. And Carl specializes in emotional abuse. And he says it's, it's in part due to his own childhood experiences. So when you look at his perspective as a clinical psychologist, then he is far more able to understand emotional abuse because through his professional training and his personal experience, he has a very deep understanding of the nuances of emotional abuse, having experienced those himself. And so then he starts to recognize the long-term impact of growing up with a narcissistic mom, and then we'll just say an emotionally immature dad. And that, that does help him have more empathy for his patients. I, I call mine clients, he says patients, but his personal history enables him to, to empathize profoundly and to really be able to feel and share some of those experiences that some of these people are going through. And so then he understands the complex emotions, the struggles that his patients face, and that helps make him a more compassionate and effective therapist. So let's talk, though, about his mom. And I think this is really fascinating. And, and we've done a little bit of a deep dive here, is that he says that his mom often sought attention even when he was young. And then throughout high school and college, he now realizes she listened very little to Carl, but she would often then tell Carl about her experiences of what she was going through when she was in college like he is, or how the teachers loved her, or she basically would end up teaching a class. And whatever it was, or when she would ask a question, it was simply to then just launch into, he might give a one or two word answer, but then she would launch into one of her own stories, which ultimately took Carl through, he says, heroic story after heroic story, where everyone learned that she was incredible and that they were not. And they were all grateful that, that she came into their lives. And he said, even to this day, she continues to regularly belittle or disregard his feelings or achievements unless they add to her own sense of importance. One of my favorite Carl lines is that she has told him that she is the reason that he became a psychologist, to which he says confidently, yes, mom, yes, you are. Now, the impact that it had on Carl growing up, he often felt more like an extension of his mom rather than his own individual person. 
And he definitely wasn't allowed to explore or even have out loud his own needs or his own hopes or desires or or dreams. So Carl struggled with his own self-esteem issues and he really only felt valued when he met his mom's expectations or met her needs. And he looks back now and he said it it really didn't matter what he was going through. It was going to be an opportunity for her to lecture him about what he did wrong to which, and it's true, she probably felt like that was the way to be a good parent because he said that that was definitely how she was parented. That essentially that as a parent, that was what you did. You tell stories that you have confabulated into legendary tales of success, which he says for the record cannot be backed up. And he talked about one time being in her old hometown and they went to the school, the high school to look up the school records that his mom talked about only to discover and looking through old yearbooks that she actually hadn't participated in sports for the high school at all. So now just a really quick pause. I think this is almost sad because to me, as somebody that works with this population, then I can only venture a guess that Carl's mom never felt like she was enough with her parents, Carl's grandparents, and, and possibly was never actually allowed to play high school sports. So I would, I would hazard a guess that she has then turned a slowly but surely growing narrative that had she been able to join the track team in high school, then no doubt she would have been fast. How fast? Well, if she would have been able to be coached and had the right support, probably faster than anybody on the team or even in the area, the land, the state. And then I I did float this one out to Carl one time when we were just talking loosely because his mom often refers to the 1976 Olympics. So then he, let's say that she watches the Olympics one day, discovers that the world record in the 1976 Olympics, which I looked up, was 11.04 seconds for the 100 meter dash. So then in her mind, well, then that means she probably could have run under 12 seconds if she would have been given the chance because here's the crazy thing about confabulation. You can almost see how somebody gets there, that they tell themselves the story to almost make up for the fact that they didn't have supportive parents. And this is happening deep in the subconscious. And then it becomes the memory. They create the memory. And so that memory that would be that, man, if I would have got to run in high school, then I'm sure I would have been the fastest around. And if that would have been the case, then obviously I would have made it to the Olympics and I probably would have ran this time. So then that means, because what's happening is then the the memory, the every time that they pull that memory out, it gets packed and, and confabulated with new memories that make them better and better and all these other details. And that's why you run into some pretty big tales that people tell about their their high school, their college days. And and then they're so detailed because this person has filled in all the details. You know, you find that the truly immature narcissistic person won't remember one thing, but then another thing, they remember it to a T, every single detail about it. And often that is a sign of that confabulated memory. So they create that memory. Then every time they recall it, fill it in with more and more of the things that probably would have happened if it had gone the way that they wish it would have until one day it did happen. So then a quick Google search, and I want to see if she would have been running sub 12 seconds in 1976 in high school. And let's just say that she for sure would have been in line for some Olympic running if that would have been her time back then. And then here is what is so fascinating about narcissists and emotional maturity. So the more that the narcissist shares these stories, well, people eventually then either don't say a word because what's the point? And then the narcissist puts that memory back away as, well, that definitely happened because People were just so enthralled and enamored by my story. So then that memory is strengthened. And then if you do disagree, well, now they'll engage because if you are disagreeing, then that means you think you're right and you think they're wrong. And then therefore you must now be made to take the one down position or to feel dumb. And then that's done by the narcissist or the emotionally immature as if 
it's as if they're just breathing air. Now they go to by way of anger or manipulation or gaslighting or victim status or you name it, which is why ultimately people end up going no contact with the narcissist because it because contact fuels the narcissist. And sometimes that really does break my heart because they have to have another individual to interact with to make them feel like they matter. They can't just be or be curious or hear somebody else's perspective because they were never modeled that behavior. People were not curious about them. And now it's as if they're so fragile that if you really look deep into their soul and then pointed out these inconsistencies, then that means you are going to abandon them and they will die. They must be this special and this amazing. And in order to do so, then you must be one down to make sure that they know that they are they are better than you because that's that's what they're looking for. And that is why they often raise either similar kids or highly sensitive kids or kids that find themselves in relationships similar to their own kid parent dynamic with somebody who is, we'll say, big and loud and decisive and who takes action, but still doesn't take ownership. So back to the story of Carl, and we'll just take a look from his mom's perspective. She might believe that she was doing what was best for Carl, not recognizing her behavior as harmful. Because in her view, her actions might have been justified as pushing Carl to achieve more or ensuring that the family maintained a certain image that her son was going to go on and get his doctorate. Yes, now he is Dr. Carl, but yet she has never taken the time to understand that the type of doctor that Carl is cannot prescribe medication or perform a surgery. And if somebody is having a a problem on an airplane and they say, is there a doctor in the house? He needs to tell her, mom, I, I'm not going to just go ask the person who's passing out. Hey, how you feeling right now? Any trauma from your mom? Like me? So yes, Carl is successful now. But again, it is in spite of his mom, not thanks to his mom. And then if we bring Carl's dad into the mix, Carl's father likely struggled with emotional regulation. He was really unable to provide emotional support or guidance. And he just often just reacted impulsively or he would withdraw at times of stress. And when dad was stressed because of work, or later Carl really wonders because of interacting with his mom, then as dad retreated to working late or spending a lot of time with his friends in a man cave or going out doing his own activities, but truly disengaging from the family. So when Carl would interact with his dad, his dad was dealing with so much of his own stuff in life that he just never really had the time or took the time to truly get to know Carl. And Carl has felt that his entire life. He said it's actually been emotionally freeing for Carl to let go of that need for his dad's approval to get to this place where Carl just has to know or learn that he is enough, that he's okay. Because Carl always struggled with feeling like he was, or he would always let his dad down. But a lot of that is because he honestly received little to no feedback from his dad. So he was left to guess. And as we covered it in the past, thoughts just left to their own don't often lead to, but I'm sure everything was okay. I am enough. And my dad loves me, even though he's never said it. And there's the criticism coming from him has no, no effect on me. Because here's where that concept of whole object relations comes back into play. And working with Carl, we've helped Carl learn how to see his dad as an, an entire person, a whole person. That he, he would never be able to thank his dad enough for, he said, was providing financially for the family and working hard. Because he knew his dad had an incredible work ethic, which again, now he wonders if that was because it wasn't necessarily as comfortable to be at home. But the financial stability is what has helped Carl achieve a lot of his own early stability in his life, which is what he needed in order to do all of his schooling to get to the point where he is now. So he appreciates that. And and while he has also been sad and angry and frustrated and disappointed, he's also grateful. And he also realizes that 
his own dad didn't know what he didn't know. And there is barely any talk going on today about emotional neglect or attachment issues in general. So he knows that his that those weren't topics of conversation when his dad was a young father or even just a father to teenagers. That his dad probably wasn't learning things and then actively plotting to not use them with his own kids or family. So what becomes really interesting, I think this is, uh, you hear jokes a lot that therapists get into therapy to work on themselves. Most therapists think, no, I didn't. But I, I bring this story up because Carl recognizes now that he got into the field he's in because of his childhood experiences. And little did he know that he would be really good at what he does because he has empathy for what others are going through. And I recognize myself that I can only speak truly to the things that that I have been through. I can read you textbook things. This is why one of the areas I don't focus a lot on is eating disorders or disordered eating because I, I have not had a problem with that or it is pretty, it's really fascinating to me when people have the, the body dysmorphia or they see themselves in a different light than what you know I, I see in front of me. But boy, if we want to talk about emotional immaturity, narcissistic traits and tendencies, anxious attachment, getting rid of shame, just being and doing, learning to be present, learning to be curious, mindfulness, meditation, building that pause in, then I can speak to these things because they just, they resonate with me because of my own lived experience. So then Carl's background gives him an incredible set of unique insights into the dynamics of people who have been through emotional abuse and neglect. Because Carl understands the subtleties of how different forms of what he calls parental inadequacy can affect the child's entire developmental process. And so then he finds personal healing through his professional work. Helping others who have had similar experiences, it can be therapeutic for Carl. And it allows him to process his own past and use it to foster a deeper connection with his patients. And, and so he says that, yeah, in this scenario, absolutely, his career choice is, is so deeply influenced by his childhood experience that his understanding of the impact of having a narcissistic mom and an emotionally immature dad allows him to connect with and support his patients in a really profound and empathetic way that isn't just learning about something in a textbook and then trying to share that with other people. So I think that that is just so interesting and it speaks volumes then to how we can still learn or show up differently from an emotionally immature or narcissistic parent. But then the question is often, why do some people show up in a way where they go into maybe a mental health field and then somebody else goes down a path where they just continually are looking for more and more and more validation, but it's coming from this, this hole deep inside of them that they feel like they can never ever fill, but they aren't even aware that they can't because they are continually trying to fill that hole. And back to my own experience, I was one of those who said, oh no, I, I'm not getting into this field to work on myself. I, I dig myself. Uh, I'm awesome. Just ask me. But then going through this process year after year after year, and you start to just pick up and recognize the, the traits that people are struggling with or going through and realizing, oh man, thank goodness that I found this, this career path because it really has helped me grow as a person. And then I feel like that is all I want to do is share and help other people. And in the vein of pure transparency, what I want to go through is a list of, I think I have almost 10 it's these traits are ways that emotionally mature narcissistic parents negatively impact their kids. And this is just something I've had on a Google document for a long time. And I never put the where this came from. And I know it came from some article that somebody had, had sent me. And I, I Googled certain words and phrases and I could not find 
the the article to give the proper attribution. So if if someone ever says, wait a minute, I wrote all those things, then please reach out to me and I would love to to give you credit for this article because I thought it was really good. So how narcissistic parents can negatively impact their kids. The the first way is self-centeredness. So imagine if somebody is always focused on themselves, like they're the main character in a movie, then everybody else is just playing a side character or a supporting cast because that's how narcissistic parents often act. That they're so wrapped up in their own world that they don't have much emotional energy left for their kids. And they don't even know that they aren't making it about the kids because more often than not, they are simply modeling the behavior that they witness, that this is all that they know, that the parent does make it about themselves because that's, the, that's just what the parent does. That they don't even know that the, the goal to create a secure attachment with your kid is to first go toward your kid. Tell me more. What's going on for you? What's that like for you? And if I want to then tell you that, well, don't do that, or, well, here's what I used to do when I was your age, those are me things. And that's me, in essence, treating my kid like a a little emotional support animal. And I'm wanting validation from my kid because I didn't get it from my own parents. And I don't know how to get that from other adults my age. There's a story that comes to mind that I swear I spent more time trying to find this story than recording or putting this whole podcast together, but I think it's so worth it. But it's from the Angela Duckworth book, Grit, which is a really fascinating book. But in the book, she tells a story about Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder's mom named Jackie. So from the book, Jeff Bezos' mother Jackie watched with great curiosity to what interested her children. She said, I was just so curious about these little creatures and who they were and what they were going to do. I paid attention to what interested each one, and they were all different, and followed their lead. I felt it was my responsibility to let them do deep dives into what they really enjoyed. Jeff was always inventing things and trying new things, breaking things, and fixing them. So she says, do we as parents let them bloom into a world-class problem solver? Jackie Bezos tells of how she was sitting with a friend, and Jeff comes up and tells her, And I think in the book, this was when he was maybe 10 or or around that age. And she tells her all about some scientific thing. And Jackie's friend asked if she understood what Jeff was saying after he left. And Jackie's response was, oh, it's not important that I understand everything. It's important that I listen. And I've thought about that example so often where if I felt immature or insecure and I didn't understand what my kid was talking about, then if you're really immature, then you think, well, that means they, they think they're smarter than me. So then I need to let them know, you know what, that stuff's ridiculous. You're not going to do anything with that when you grow up anyway. Or, well, I think that's dumb and you should be doing something else because then the parent has made it about them. Because kids need a lot of attention and love to grow up feeling secure and good about themselves, but a self-absorbed parent struggles to give enough of that. So this can leave a kid feeling insecure and doubting themselves and unsure about how close they should get to others. And it can really start to to play a role and, and mess with how they see themselves. So a second example of how narcissistic or emotionally immature parents can impact kids is the concepts around grandiosity and then living vicariously through your kid. Because if you think about parents who are overly obsessed with power or looking good to others, then they might see their kids as a way to boost their own image, especially if the kid is super talented. Now, the downside, if the kid is really good at something, they might become an extension of that parent's ego. If the kid isn't meeting these high expectations, then they could face a harsh treatment from the parent. And this is one of those situations where you just see a lot of parents that are just really, really driving their kids, almost, well, not even almost, into the ground to perform better, to try harder, to work more. With A lot of times with regard to sports is one of the easiest things to, to take a look at. 
And these situations are, are tough because they can really mess with a kid's emotional growth, either making them feel like they're just a, a part of their parent or it leaves them just feeling absolutely rejected if they don't measure up. And man, true, vulnerable, honest confession here. My son had a full ride basketball scholarship and not long ago had decided, and I'm so proud of him now for making this decision because it was a, a him decision that he said he didn't want to play anymore. And this had been a big part of his identity. And, and I realized I felt this front and center and talk about the concepts around differentiation of things being a me thing. I loved seeing him play. I enjoyed the attention he received locally. I loved saying that he had a, a full ride basketball scholarship. I loved watching him play. I couldn't wait to watch him play more. I loved when he chased down the scoring record at his uh, over 100-year-old high school. I loved wearing the gear. Now, what is that a lot of? I, 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 I. There is so much of me going on there that then that is a me issue to not just say, tell me what that's like. Tell me more. Because I have to realize if I'm trying to force him to do something that he no longer wants to do, that has been a long time in the making. So other things, and I'll, I'll go through some of these pretty quickly. The lack of proper care and responsiveness. Narcissistic parents often don't really get other people's feelings, especially their kids, because they might only pay attention to their kid if it somehow benefits them. If you have had a conversation with an emotionally mature narcissistic parent, and in, even if they do ask what's going on, and you start to explain, I can't tell you the number of times I've had conversations in my office with people that say, I mean, my, my mom, my dad, they literally start just looking at their watch or their phone, or you can just see them get irritated or agitated or almost anxious. Like, I, okay, I asked a question. I really want, I don't want to hear anything. This has nothing to do with me. And this lack of sensitivity, it will really start to, to hinder a kid's emotional development because then they will start to feel emotionally starved because they're not going to continue to go to that well. Because then if the parent says, so what have you been up to? At some point, the kid's just going to say, not much. So the parent says, oh, okay, cool, good. Makes the parent feel better. And the kid just says, what does it matter? I can't open up to you anyway. And then that can absolutely play out into other relationships where either they can be a lot, they can almost be emotionally overwhelming to a new partner because they so desperately want to be heard, or they show up completely withdrawn or avoidant as an avoidant attachment style because they feel like, well, what does it matter anyway? I'm never heard. Uh, a couple of other things, impatience with what are called normal kid behavior. If a parent is super concerned about their own image, then they might not handle typical kid misbehavior well. They get really easily frustrated and they might respond harshly because they think that their kid's behavior reflects on them badly. You guys need to not embarrass me when we are going out to eat. Instead of just knowing that a kid is going to be and do loud and do crazy things when you go out to eat and they are your kids. It's your family. It's your situation. It's your dynamic. If somebody else takes offense, well, then that's really a them issue. Now, I'm not saying that you're running up on top of the tables and throwing french fries all over the place because that's an attachment uh, need just screaming out loud there. Hey, look at me. But that impatience with normal kid behavior, then it will often lead kids to feel like they have to be perfect. And that's a huge burden. And that can lead to a whole lot of issues like anxiety, our kids being too hard on themselves or back to the withdrawing from others. Overbearing control. Narcissistic parents often need to control everything. Love or control in a relationship. Which one? Not both. So they're constantly directing and coaching and criticizing. And once you really see this, it's so hard to unsee it because you just see it's almost like the parent just exists by telling the kid, hey, sit up. Don't do that. Shh, don't, don't say that. Look straight ahead. And the kid just all of a sudden feels like I'm literally just sitting here being 
and I'm doing it wrong, which I, that breaks my heart to see that internalize, see a kid internalize that, that my simple existence is apparently not the right way to do it. So now I really do need somebody to tell me if I'm okay. And I need somebody to tell me if I'm saying the right thing or doing the right thing. And and that is, is almost a, a recipe to get into an unhealthy relationship with an emotionally immature narcissistic person who is more than happy to tell you what to do and what to say and how to feel and think. And let me go into a a little bit of a deep dive on this next one. It's the concept around struggling to love the real child or to really see the kid as who they are. So imagine a parent who can't really love their kid just as they are because narcissists and emotionally immature parents so often have this issue. They can't give that full unconditional love that kids really need if the kid is making them uncomfortable with who the kid is. ADHD, an ADHD kid, a highly anxious kid, a kid who maybe doesn't do the things that the parent always thought that their kid would do. So then instead, the parent's love comes with conditions, like only showing affection when the child meets their expectations. And this can make a a kid feel like they're not good enough as they are, leading to feelings of being unlovable and and an entirely just internalized negative view of themselves. So let me give you a specific example that I have actually seen play out on multiple occasions. And this is one where uh, a father and son, where the father will just say that uh, he was a a decent or maybe even a really talented or good high school athlete. And so he seems to have a fixed image on what he wants his son to be, which is an athlete just like the old man. But this expectation overshadows his ability to appreciate and embrace his son's genuine interests which in this case and in a few have been something like music. So the father, he's disinterested in music and the son's passion for music is a crucial part of his identity. That's what he thinks about. That's what he watches on TV, on YouTube. He plays anything that he can. He actually has a real natural talent for instruments, even though they don't even have a lot of instruments in the house. But every time he tries to share this interest with his dad, he's met with absolute indifference or a real lack of enthusiasm. And this can be seen in instances where the son talks about a new song that he's hearing or learning or some music event that he wants to even just go see at school. And in a couple of situations, it's where the kid actually wanted to play an instrument in a band and the the parent said, the dad said, oh no, no kid of mine is going to play in a band because that's during whatever track and field uh, season or baseball season. And so the father, if he even does respond, is with very minimal interest or then changes the subject back to sports which leads to forced involvement in sports. And don't get me wrong, I loved sports. I did. I also would have loved to play a musical instrument, but I I love sports. I really did. They did a wonderful thing for me as far as self-esteem and identity. But so despite his lack of natural talent or interest in sports, in this scenario, it's a son who keeps trying different sports to try and connect with his dad. And so he, every season, he's trying everything from soccer and baseball and flag football and basketball and you name it. And he's driven by this hope of winning his dad's approval or his attention. But unfortunately, his efforts in sports are, quite frankly, mediocre. And then it leaves him feeling very frustrated and his dad with not a lot of good things to say. And his dad just insisting on he needs to be better. So then the dad, who is absolutely unable to then to, to go deeper and see his son's true self and his interests, pushes him continuously to excel in sports signing him up for extra coaching and sending him to camps and just expressing disappointment at his performance, always talking on the way home about how bad the guy did during the game and just ways to improve. And then the kid, desperate for his dad's attention, 
is trying, but he, that just isn't something that he really cares about. And his, so the son's lack of enthusiasm or success in sports then is viewed by dad and the kid as a problem to be fixed, not an indication that maybe this isn't his true interest or passion. So the, the emotional consequences for the kid, then the son in his desire for a connection with his dad starts to feel real deep feelings of inadequacy, rejection, and his, he continually fails to excel in sports. You couple that with his dad's lack of interest in the kid's musical talents, and the kid absolutely now feels like he is not enough or that his true interest of what he wants to do must not really be that important or they're unworthy of his attention or time. And this starts to develop into a negative self-concept and a feeling that he is not truly loved for who he is, but he is only going to be loved if he does what others want him to do, which if we're talking long-term impact over time, this dynamic leads to deep emotional rifts. So the son starts to withdraw from trying to even connect with his dad, or he might suppress his musical interest and just continue to be mediocre in, in pursuing sports. And in the long run, it absolutely impacts his self-esteem. How could it not? And his willingness to pursue his passions, uh, he's putting those to the side, and he lacks this understanding of what a healthy, supportive relationship would look like, which unfortunately could still be modeled with his own kids someday. So in that situation, the father's inability to appreciate and nurture his son's true self, uh, his love for music, it is such an example of the struggle to love the kid authentically. And that just shines a big old spotlight on the emotional toll that a kid goes through when a parent's love and acceptance are conditional. Okay, so we've just got a couple more ways that the narcissistic or emotionally immature parent can impact their kids. Emotional roller coaster at home. Narcissistic parents, they are, they are like a volcano that is just ready to erupt. Very unpredictable and explosive, very inconsistent, emotionally inconsistent. So then their overreactions, their emotional outbursts, those make the home feel just unsafe. It can feel kind of like a minefield rather than a safe place. And so kids that grow up in that kind of an environment, it starts to just change their whole relationship with emotional safety or security or trust. Because if they feel like they are always on edge trying to see what am I walking into, where are the landmines? then what they're not doing is just being and doing, not just being a kid. They're, they're trying to read a parent's emotions, and then what do I need to do to calm the mood in the room? And when that plays into what it feels like to be them, their attachment issues come up. And so are they the peacekeeper? Do they come in and they need to be a perfectionist? Do they need to have perfect grades? Are they the comedian? But it's whatever they're trying to do to manage the emotions or the, the overall vibe in the home and so that can really make it hard for them to stay or even know what emotion, an emotionally balanced sense of self is. And so this could lead to them having some struggles with anxiety or just the way to cope, just the way to show up in a relationship when they get older. Let's talk about twisting reality. Because if you think about somebody who always sees things through the lens that suits them, even if it means distorting the truth, good old confabulation, they have to create the narrative that, that makes sense to them. And that is at the price of the truth at times. So narcissistic parents, that's one of the things that they do often. That is the, the gaslighting, that it can't be that the parent was at fault. It has to be that, well, the kid never reminded them. Or if the kid wouldn't have done that, then the parent wouldn't have had to respond the way that they did. And, and just changing the reality. And so often you see examples where a parent might say, hey, we never lie. But then the doorbell rings. 
And all of a sudden, the parent is saying, tell him we're not home. And the kid is trying to figure out, wait, I'm, I'm curious of what, how this all works. But then they, they can't express that because then they're going to be made, just, just do what I said, or you don't understand, or basically tell them to suppress their feelings or their emotions. Narcissistic parents might not be great at helping their kids understand their true strengths and weaknesses or giving them a realistic view of the world. And then that leads to kids developing a skewed and, and often negative view of themselves and not being great at making sense of the world around them, which then can impact the way that they make decisions. Or they're seeing modeled over and over again in just the smallest of things that it we can skew the truth. We can skew reality a little bit, but then we sure seem to double down on that truth. And so then it must be the way that the world works because these are my parents. This is what I'm seeing them do. Just a couple more here. Lack of empathy. It is really tough when a parent can't really tune in to how their kid is feeling. And this is again where if we're looking at narcissism versus emotional immaturity, they can look the same. But narcissism can be, I just don't, in essence, have time for your feelings because they. what's in it for me and emotional immaturity can be, I can't handle your feelings as a kid. So you need to knock it off, calm down, be quiet to where the narcissistic parent is. I'm not even going to, I'm not aware of these things. I have things that I have to do. But both of those show up as a lack of empathy and narcissists and emotionally mature people do struggle with empathy, which means they might not respond to their kids' emotional needs appropriately. And then growing up without really feeling understood and seen and heard and having no one be curious about you and not feeling supported can lead to issues of your own with trust, forming close relationships, and at times being sensitive to others' feelings. And then at other times you will be oversensitive to others' feelings. And last but not least, just how the impact that a narcissistic parent can have on modeling unhealthy relationship patterns, because they often model a kind of love that is about control. It's about imbalance, keeping someone just slightly off so that you can maintain that control rather than mutual respect and care and curiosity and who are you and developing you into your very best self, not the best self for the parent to make them look better or the best self for the parent to make it easier for them. And then so kids in these families, they might end up feeling like they are there to meet their parents' needs. And I think I've got a couple of videos out that talk about how they become, in essence, their parents' emotional support animals. It's like they almost need to wear a vest. And when they go to the store, you know, hey, don't don't touch him. He's working. He's He's validating me right now. And he's supporting me in all the things that I'm doing. Isn't that right, son and or daughter to the, and the kid? Yep, you're right, mom and dad. You guys are awesome. So there are emotional support animals, not making it more about the kid. And, uh, and that sets them up for a pretty rough time in their own relationships because then they most likely are going to repeat those unhealthy patterns without even realizing it. Where when we go back to the letter that we started with today, I love everything about it. The, the, the narcissist vaccine. But I can really appreciate, too, where she's saying, would I have liked it to have been different? Absolutely. But she didn't know what she didn't know. So here we are. And if you are someone that is coming into this awareness or waking up to your own narcissistic or emotionally immature behaviors or relationships, or you are in one of these relationships, then I really hope that as you hear these things, you don't think, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm horrible. I'm creating this. I'm doing this to my kids because the reality is we're all going through this for the very first time and here you are and you've if, again if you make it to the end of one of these podcasts you are doing the work and you are becoming more aware and just start to start to internalize these things in a good way because now you're starting to to make more sense of things you're a little bit more aware 
and it's still going to be hard to implement or put things into action until it's not. It's a process, a slow, gradual process, sometimes way too slow, much slower than we would like. But you're going to get there. You just keep on doing, keep on being. You didn't know what you didn't know. Now you know it, not necessarily doing it, or maybe you're already to the point where you're doing it more than you don't. But uh, eventually you will become, and you will be that emotionally consistent person that is taking action on the things that matter. And that is what will lead your kids into that promised land of secure attachment. And if you have adult kids, never too late, you can, it sounds self-serving, right? Share this episode with them, but you're going to figure this out anyway. Thank you so much. You can reach out if you have questions, thoughts. I love your examples. I really do. If you want to be part of the women's private Facebook group or now the men's, uh, the men's course, the men's group, I, it may start before the next one of these episodes is released. So men, reach out to me as well at contact at tonyoverbay.com and have an amazing week. And we'll see you next time on Waking Up to Narcissism. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.